A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Hello, everybody. This is Juan and Ben once again. Thank you for coming back. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on the very difficult subject of atonement. To help us out, we are engaging an essay from Peter Taylor Forsyth written in 1907 titled, The Atonement in Modern Religious Thought. Last time we talked about largely negative remarks that he made. The atonement is not this, the atonement is not like this. Today we're gonna try to be more positive and answer the question just what is going on in the work of Christ's atonement? So Ben is here with me and we're going to get started. But before we do that, I'm going to read a scripture that I think was one of Forces' favorite scriptures, I think. The reason I say that is because I see him using it time and time again in different essays. It's uh, a classic passage from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, beginning with verse 16. And this is about atonement, of course. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. All right, Ben, help us out. Let's, let's get going here. All right. Okay, well, we broke up this, um, the second half of this essay into chunks just to talk about it. I think that the first thing I want to talk about is atonement and revelation. So what is the atonement in Christian theology? And for Peter Forsyth, uh, well, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, like revelation is redemption. The idea is, is that when we talk about the revelation of God, we're not talking about information that God has made available to us. We're talking about a redemption that God has made available to us. And the idea is that Revelation isn't really revelation until it's been received. Um, it's just like communication isn't communication until it's heard. Well, in the case of revelation, it's not revelation until some kind of redemption has happened and been appropriated. So if we want to understand atonement, uh, we can use the concept of revelation to understand it. The atonement is a revelation in the rich sense of revelation, where a revelation is a redemption. So it may seem like a bit of a circular definition, but we're going to see that revelation is, is always going to be involved with um, with the concept of atonement. Uh, 
Forsyth writes that, he writes in this essay that um, the ruling idea, this is for understanding the atonement, the ruling idea is revelation. Jesus Christ makes the claim he does upon the world, not as being a religious genius, but as being the revelation of God. Any, any comments there? Uh, yeah. So atonement and revelation, the way I think of them, I think of them as concentric circles, more or less, at least in my mind. I'm not sure which one exhausts the other, but there's definitely uh, a lot of overlap between the two. And uh, I like how you said that revelation has not truly occurred until there's a reception, right? A reception of the communication on our behalf. And until there's some kind of encounter with God, we cannot say that revelation has yet taken place. So, yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about revelation as redemption, uh, Forsyth wants to say that atonement is part of redemption. And so for God to redeem us, it's not just a, um, well, it's a quite like redeem us from what? What's the problem in the first place? What is atonement even addressing? And why is atonement part of redemption? And the answer is that in, the, in, the, in this Christian perspective, uh, the problem is, is, is a problem of guilt. A sense of, it's a moral, um, a moral falling out between God and humans. And, the, and what Forsyth is, is saying in this essay is that part of it is that we're not even really aware of this guilt. We're not really aware of this moral falling out between God and people. Now think of it this way. Um, if you, you, lots of people have different ideas about God, um, but at the very least, God is, is representative of some kind of ideal, some kind of obligation for how we should treat one another at the very least. So God can be more than that, but let's say that God is at least that. Um, well, in many ways, God is out of sight and out of mind when we're not really thinking about our obligations for one another. And so it's very easy for us to have no idea about how far we are from the ideal, how far we are from what God requires of us. If we just choose not to reflect on it uh, and choose not to reflect on the needs of those around us. So revelation is, and atonement and redemption, they're all mixed up in this problem of this guilt that we don't even know about. We don't even really we can't really face up to the situation um, without help from God in the first place. So, so, so that's part of, of what we're talking about. We're talking about atonement and, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. Um, and this is why there's a severity to the concept of atonement. Atonement is not just a handing out of pardons. It is something else. It's actually tied up with the concept of judgment uh, and and we need to we need to put these two things together. Um, in this essay, Forsyth writes, "Salvation must be a salvation not from judgment, but by judgment. Christ did not simply pronounce judgment, but affected it." Now, this is interesting because I think a lot of Christians think that atonement is basically a way to get out of jail free. It's a get out of jail free card. It's a way to avoid judgment. 
But for Forsyth, it's, it's different. You can't go around it. You can't go over it, under it. You got to go through it. This is the way <laughs> that atonement works, is going through this judgment. Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you said about how in atonement, revelation is key. And what does atonement reveal? Well, if we look at the New Testament teaching, which says, I mean, we read a scripture, right? That God sent Jesus to be born, to live, eventually to die for us. Wow, that's very difficult to believe. But I think equally difficult to believe is the idea that the human situation required such drastic measures. Is the problem that bad? Wow. It's, it's just, it boggles the mind, I think, on both counts. Yeah, exactly. So let's go to the next point then, which is atonement and judgment for us. Um, the revelation in question is largely a revelation of human sin. And I'm not expecting that we even can grasp the weight of, of our human sin on our own. This is something that we need help with. Um, and so the revelation of God, this redemption that's offered to us, it comes with a bit of a knowledge of what we've been redeemed from. And that's part of the actual uh, redemption itself is, is helping us to see what it was that we, that was that we were in the grips of so that we can be free from it. And so for Peter Forsyth, atonement and judgment, a lot of our Christians will think of judgment as something in the future. They think about a judgment to come and maybe they're worried about it. And maybe a lot of people think this, whether they're deeply religious or not, they have this sense of judgment in the future. Well, for Peter Forsyth, the judgment of God is in the past. The judgment of God is made manifest in Christ crucified. And this is a really interesting theological decision. Um, because it puts the judgment in the past. That's an interesting thing, uh, which basically means that we need to pay attention. Like, uh, it, we need to pay attention. We, if we want to know how does God see the world, what is the judgment of God upon the world? I'm thinking in terms of how does God interpret the world? What does God think of our society and the way we treat one another, our lives? Um, well, we need to look to the judgment day to find out. And the judgment day is in the past. We can look back to the death of Christ to answer questions we have about how does God see the world today? And this is a really important, um, this is a really important part of how to do theology in my opinion. Yeah, so here it says, is it possible to have any adequate sense of the actual love of God in Christ without an equally real sense of his actual condemnation of sin? What do you think of that question? So this is a question, this is, goes back to last week where we we're asking like, why can't God just forgive? And the answer that I kind of offered, which I, think is inspired by Peter Forsyth is that, well, if God were to just forgive without any hope of transformation or reconciliation, then, um, then that would be very similar to just the, the unmitigated judgment of God. Because I, 
I think that I interpret the judgment of God largely as God allowing us to go our own way. And if God were just to say, okay, I forgive you, I'll stop pursuing you. That's, that's another, another way to say that is just to say, and I, and I, and I will, if, if I just leave you alone, that's the judgment of God. That's not really a forgiveness unto life. That's sort of a forgiveness unto death. And so if, if transformation is part of the Christian good news and not simply the idea that God will leave us alone and let us do what we will. Um, if this transformation is going to be part of the Christian good news, then we need to address the sickness. Um, we need to know what are we transforming towards? What are we transforming away from? What do we need to leave behind? What in our life and our collective lives is uh, antithetical to the character of God as revealed in Christ? And so if you want to understand the love of God, there's always going to be the contrast, which is like, what is the, what is antithetical to the love of God? And there's much in our lives that are, that is in fact against the love of God. And, and that stuff needs to be addressed. It can't just be ignored um, without us just parting ways with God and going our own way. So, so if we want to have any kind of robust sense of the salvation and atonement, um, we need to think about that. Yeah. Great. All right. Should we move on to the next one? Sure. Yeah. All right. Next one is atonement and repentance. So how are these two related? Again, depending on who you talk to, they'll give you different responses, different ideas. I would say when I first became a Christian, I always thought of repentance as something you did before really committing. Like you repent first, then you become a Christian and you move on. Of course, that's very wrong. Uh, repentance, like Luther said, it's an ongoing project that's going to keep us busy until we die. So, so there's that. But I think uh, the relationship here is important. How does our view of the atonement uh, deepen, nourish, inform, and empower our repentance? Because I believe that in hindsight, when we look back at the cross, that is how and that is when we actually understand our sin and just uh, our predicament. And I really believe that fixing, uh, fixing our eyes on the crucified Jesus enables us to not just understand, but maybe even feel a little bit more of what Christ felt right before he went on to die on the cross. And I think of, uh, I think he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So Jesus is just a few hours away from the cross. He's praying, he's in agony, he's sweating, even drops of blood, according to Luke. So he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. But what are the disciples doing? The disciples are falling asleep. I mean, it's not their finest hour, right? I think that is telling. I think that is who we are and that is what we are like. Until we have this revelation of what happens on the cross, I think uh, our repentance or our understanding of what's going on is going to be very similar to what's going on with the disciples falling asleep, not understanding, 
disappointing Jesus and uh, just uh, just really not understanding and therefore not being able to produce what the ultimate aim is of the atonement. And what is that? Well, it's faith, it's repentance. And like it says in Titus 3, 5, I believe, the ultimate aim in the atonement is that as a result of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there's going to be a people of God who are zealous for good works, who not, not only are willing to repent from their sins, right, but who are willing to do righteousness, to love righteousness, and to please God by having the spirit of Jesus lead us in how we walk and do everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I think about atonement and repentance, so repentance is um, often thought of as uh, like a practical word as, as changing your ways, I guess. Um, another way of looking at it is, another way of looking at it is, um, is, is a question of understanding what is wrong. Uh, so if somebody harms me, they may not even realize that they harmed me. Like maybe they did something that it offended me or hurt me. Um, so what does it look like for them to repent? Like, well, the first thing is for them to even know that there's something wrong in the world. If they don't know anything's wrong in the world, there's no way for them to repent. Um, and so maybe I say to them, hey, you offended me or you hurt me. Uh, and they're like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Just really easily and cheaply. Like they don't like, and they like, and they think, are we good now? And, but that maybe the hurt was much deeper than that. Um, there's a sense in which people need to appreciate what has been done in order for everybody to sort of heal and move on. And so in the atonement, what I think is Peter Forsyth is saying and others is that finally we have somebody who sees the world the way God sees it and who sees the wrong things that are being done the way that God sees them. Um, somebody who can finally appreciate not only who God is, but what the world has become in alienation to God at the same time. And, and the idea is that there's no, Peter Forsyth writes, um, such a recognition is not possible to a sinful soul or race. It can only be made by a conscience that's unblunted in its moral perceptions because sinlessness uh, in its moral obedience yet identified in sympathy with the, uh, with the sinful race. So on the one hand, this idea of the sinlessness of Jesus, it's not a theoretical uh, thing that has to do with the virgin birth or whatever. It's more about the idea that finally we have somebody who has a conscience that appreciates who God is, how valuable God is, how worthy of worship God is, someone who is swept up in the goodness of God um, and, and living amongst us at the same time and then and out of obedience to his father and the goodness of his father, uh, who's ultimately killed as a consequence of his obedience. It, he was in a unique position to see something that nobody else has seen before. And so 
atonement and repentance. Our repentance is, is when we um, appropriate the conscience of Christ for ourselves, where Christ, the pioneer of our faith, as Hebrews calls him, goes first. He appreciates it first. And then our life's work as Christians is to, is to appropriate the conscience of Christ for ourselves. And I was, I think I wanted to say this earlier, but um, like, this is what I think experiential theology is largely about is this experience of appropriating the conscience of Christ for ourselves. It's not a theoretical theology or a theoretical faith. It's a faith where over time you find yourself transformed to see the world as Christ saw it, as Christ sees it, um, to share in his conscience, to share in his heartache for the things that are, that are wrong in the world. Um, yeah. So this, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a very involved process of repentance. And, and with, with Jesus, it's not that he turned from his wicked ways and that's how he repented first as, as a model for us. It's not that it's that he appreciated the character of God first and was obedient unto death first and, and, and just grasped the severity of our situation first. And, and our repentance is to sort of join in on that. Um, Peter Forsyth has another line here that I think is really good. And, and I think this is helpful because often we think of the judgment of God at the cross as sort of as the suffering of Jesus, like the death of Jesus, that God is judging Jesus by having him killed. But this is the mistake that people have been making since the dawn of time of, oh, if you're suffering, it must be because you're sinful. <laughs> the suffering of Christ has nothing to do with Christ being sinful. And often suffering in our world has nothing to do with the person who suffers being sinful. Um, instead, what Forsyth says is our saving repentance is not due to our terror of the judgment to fall on us, but due to our horror of the judgment that we brought on him. God has allowed us to kill God's best representative. That's God's judgment on us, even though it's Christ that suffered as a result. Um, and I think that's a much better perspective. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very deep. I mean, when you're talking about the atonement, it's, it's the core of Christian theology and it's just, it's so deep. Okay. We're going to move on now. Let's talk about the relationship between atonement and understanding guilt. So I'll read a passage here from the essay as well. I'll read it slowly because the question is a little bit difficult to understand. So the question really is, where did the difficulty lie that was to be overcome by redemption? Was it in forgiving the penitent or in producing the penitence that could be forgiven? Was it in God or in man? in the divine conscience or the human? Where did Christ feel that the obstacle lay with which he had to deal? Yeah, so the answer to that question is, is, the, is basically the, the label of whatever atonement theory you have to answer it. So that's the question. It's like, what is the problem that's, that Christ solves? Um, so it might be helpful to go back and just sort of review some atonement theories uh, and just to realize that there are more than one <laughs> so 
So the uh, ransom theory of the atonement is the idea that the problem is, is that humans are in bondage to Satan. And that, like, just like Satan has kidnapped humans, like a bunch of kidnapped people or, or captive people. And the ransom theory is that Christ somehow pays the ransom to recover humans from the devil. Now laugh if you want, but this is a, this is like one of the first theories of the atonement in the, in the church. It's very old theory it goes back to the early church almost. Um, but it's, it's, it's got problems. Like, is that really the problem is that Satan owns us? Well, you have to have a whole theology of Satan first. And I mean, I don't want to build much on top of one of those anyway. So <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think that, I think that there may be better options. And then we have the satisfaction theory, which is that the problem is that God is like a king who's been insulted and we need to satisfy his honor uh, somehow. And, and the idea is that the only way for God to save face essentially is for, is, is, is through the atonement. That's the problem that's trying to be solved. Um, I'm trying to think of a few more. So maybe a more liberal approach is that humans are ignorant. They just don't realize that God loves them. What we really need is to be shown that God loves us and then everything will be fine. Uh, so that's, that would be more of like a moral influence theory of the atonement. Well, in Peter Forsyth's case, the problem is that humans are guilty and that we don't know that we're guilty. And the problem is, is irreducibly moral. It's the idea that um, there's a God who's worthy of our worship who we are in the process of systematically rejecting at a collective level and at an individual level. And reconciliation has to involve a revelation of this problem and a turning um, towards God uh, in some sense. So can you think of any other atonement theories as off the bat and <laughs> as we... Like what are the problems? What other problems have people come up with and tried to solve with the atonement? Yeah. Well, there's uh, Christus Victor, which is it's very similar to the ransom theory. The idea that you know Jesus overcomes death and the powers in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I know they don't necessarily have an atonement theory. They will call it. I don't think. But the idea is that because of sin we die, and that's. The problem, the problem is that we die. And so they say atonement here involves the resurrection because in the resurrection, Christ overcomes death. So more or less, I would say Eastern Orthodox Christians, that's how they look at the atonement. Yes, there's guilt. Yes, there's all these things we're talking about. But fundamentally, the, the big problem is that we die. And death needs to be overcome. And death is overcome through the resurrection. Um, yeah, but I, I think we cover more than enough, at least in the Western <laughs> church. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for Forsyth, the problem is that we, we have rejected God's character without even... And then we become blind to that fact. So we're sort of in, in deep. And so what we need is to is to appreciate our situation, our moral situation with respect to God. And what we need is a conscience that sees clearly, basically. And so the atonement is Christ seen clearly for the first time. For the first time, a human has seen clearly what it is to live in a world that's under God's judgment and why that makes sense. 
not so much why it makes sense, but why that it's appropriate given the character of God, um, the worthiness of the character of God, the severity of our rejection of that character, and, and, and then the situation that we all find ourselves in. And so the atonement, he says here, it, it's meant to produce a sense of guilt such that God can forgive. Um, because this forgiveness is not just a forgive and forget. It's a forgiveness unto restoration and unto reconciliation and unto transformation. So it needs to involve this revelation of God's character and, and the contrast with our character. Now you had something to read, did you not there? Um, out of your book? Uh, okay, and that, about this idea of seeing clearly, Christ seeing clearly. Well, I did, but I, I don't know where I left that quote. But uh, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll just agree with you and say that. Yeah, sin or the fall—that's the the term that we like to use, right? The fall. And well, I don't like to use it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I don't mind it because I'm I'm looking behind the myth. So I would say the fall or sin, original sin. I mean, there's a bunch of terms for these things. Um, yeah, they, they have really done something to us fundamentally. So the reason Jesus comes to do his work of atonement is fundamentally because this is something that we cannot do. The human situation is such that we, we cannot do this that is required of us. And so that's where Jesus uh, comes in. All right. Yeah, I think in this essay too, that Forsyth says something about the fall. And he says that, like, I, I, I have to find the quote later, but he says something like, our need of atonement doesn't depend on a historic fall. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It depends on the, basically the experiential reality of collective and individual guilt. Like, so uh, this is why I push back on the fall a little bit whenever I see it referenced um, by pastors or, or whatever, because if we found out somehow that the doctrine of the fall was wrong, mm -hmm. be like, oh no, where's, what does that do to our doctrine of the atonement? And the answer is like nothing. We're still exactly as we were before when we believed the fall. We still have collective sin. We still have collective guilt. We still treat each other badly. Just look around, like the present situation motivates the atonement, not historic fall. That's all, I guess that's what I mean to say is I prefer to look to the present and our history, our known history, not our mythological history and say that we just need help. Like we do just look around. That's enough for me. Um, and I think that was enough for Peter Forsyth to, 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 to build on the need for an atonement, to build it on the present reality. Uh, and, and I think that the doctrine of the fall is, is kind of like an attempt to explain how did we get where we are? How did we end up in this situation? Um, whether it's a right or wrong explanation, it doesn't really matter. Um, we're here. We need help. That's what's really important. Yeah. Great. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, the next section. What about substitution? So... As soon as we talk about atonement, substitutionary atonement immediately comes to mind to most people, definitely Protestant Christians, right? And there's reasons for that. I mean, the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, say that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Christ died for our sins. What does that mean? 
Okay. Well, here, Peter Forsyth has a text in the essay that I want to read, and then we're going to talk about it. He says, atonement is substitutionary, else it is none. Let us not denounce or renounce such words, but interpret them. They came into existence to meet a spiritual necessity, and to sweep them away is spiritual wastefulness, to say no worse. We may replace the word substitution by representation or identification, but the thing remains. Christ not only represents God to man, but man to God. The principle of a vicarious atonement is bound up with the very idea of revelation, of love emerging into guilt. There is an atoning substitution and a penal, but a penitential, there is not. Okay. There's a lot there. Okay. So the, so the theory of the atonement that we're, I want to contrast to, and kind of contrast it to a little bit last week, is penal substitutionary atonement. This is the idea is that human sin demands that God punish it. And instead of punishing us, God punishes Jesus. And so the punishment is deflected. We can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to God and so on. Now, I think this is a very problematic way to look at things, even though it's, it's almost evangelical orthodoxy. Uh, and, and nevertheless, even though I think it's problematic, um, we can still hang on to this idea of a substitution. And, and Forsyth encourages us to even though he recognizes that it comes from a weird place. It comes from some weird theologies that we don't really want to hang on to, but we're going to hang on to the phrase substitution anyway. And uh, he says, maybe we can use representation or identification. And the idea here is that Jesus is on the one hand representing God to humans, but also representing humans to God. Uh, and so Jesus serves as our representative to God. And the way we kind of described this earlier so far in this discussion was that Jesus is the only person, the first person to appreciate the weight of the situation, the moral situation between God and humans. And his conscience serves as the representative for all of our conscience, consciences. Uh, if we join into his conscience, if we begin to see the world the way he sees it, and to see God and God's judgment upon the world the way that God sees it, that's repentance on our part. We're entering into um, a path that Jesus has laid out for us as our representative. Um, and from God's perspective, finally, somebody on this planet of his appreciates who God is <laughs> and does it on behalf of the whole planet, on behalf of all of us people. Uh, so Jesus is certainly representing us in that, in that way. I, and I'm, I'd be comfortable uh, saying that for sure. Um, yeah, but Jesus also represents God to us. Uh, and I maybe we could even say Jesus substitutes for God for us. <laughs> I think a lot of evangelicals, they want to say Jesus is God. That's how near and dear this substitution is for them, because they're like, Jesus is God. Easy, substituted, problem solved. I think it's more complicated than that, because Jesus prays to God, has fellowship with God, obeys God, is raised to life by God, and so on. So, it's more complicated than that, honestly, but at a practical level, 
the worship of God and the worship of Jesus basically become one and the same thing. Jesus substitutes for God to us. And I think, I think that that's safe to say as well. So the substitution goes both ways. Okay, great. So Forsyth says, yes, we, we still need to say yes to substitution. We can use other language, better language if we can come up with it, but let's not, uh, let's not be so eager to get rid of these classic terms without due consideration. Okay, well, I think the last big question that we're gonna cover here is what about a penal substitution? So we're saying yes to substitution. What about a penal substitution? Yeah, so so in the last episode, we saw that it's, it's the problem of equivalence. This is where most of the problems come in. If we wanna say the way it works is that whatever I owed God in terms of suffering, Jesus suffered the equivalent amount, and so it's covered. We want to reject that. Forsyth wants to reject that, and I do reject that. Um, it's this equivalence thinking, this mathematical thinking, this sort of bookkeeping atonement that is very problematic and the source of many problems. Um, on the other hand, we, we are people who, who live under the judgment of God. Um, if you don't believe that, just open a history book, like the First World War, the Second World War. Um, the, there's so many horrible things that are happening in history. These things are happening largely because we are allowed to do whatever we think is best. And whatever we think is best is often a very bad idea. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I take this to be the judgment of God, um, among other things. So, so something is going on in response to our sin. Our sin has an ability to systematize and organize and grow and develop and wield great hardship uh, on upon us all. So we have to talk about something, um, some kind of sense of punishment of sin. That, and, and so this is where the word penal comes in. It's the idea of like, how does sin ever get, how does sin ever get punished? Um, and like, and what is the purpose for the punishment? So I feel like I'm rambling here, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> One way to look at punishment is to look at it as retribution. And this is, and I want to reject this as well. This is the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this equivalence principle that a punishment is meant to cause an equivalent amount of harm. And I think that we can reject that safely as Christians, even though many people hang on to it. Um, so the idea of a retributionary atonement, I think, is off the is off the table. Like we we do not see in Christ a suffering that's meant to get even for what we've done to God and one another. It's ridiculous if you think about it. If you put it in those terms, it's just ridiculous, and yet it's very widely believed. Um, so what does it mean for Christ to suffer, or to, to for there to be a penalty to sin? And I think that the answer is, and I think this is what Forsyth's answer is, is that we live in a world that's under the judgment of God and that God is right in allowing that to happen. And Jesus is a person who fully appreciates the situation of human sin and of God's judgment upon that sin. And he enters into what 
we would call the sphere of the judgment of God, the region of the judgment of God. And being obedient to God in the realm of God's judgment upon sin gets him killed. He suffers as a result of our sin. It's as a result of our sin that there's such a thing as a place called the realm of God's judgment in which those who obey God and many other people as well suffer needlessly. And so, yes, the, the, the death of Christ is God's judgment upon sin, but it's God's judgment in the form of allowing us to do horrible things like this. Uh, it's God's judgment upon sin that we are allowed to harm God's best representatives towards us. And that should be an eye opener. Uh, that's the kind of revelation I'm talking about here. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is a very deep subject. And uh, I definitely feel inadequate in spite of the many, many books I've read on this subject. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a tremendous subject to talk about here. Um, but I think it's essential to, again, remember that, for example, uh, a more liberal take would say, well, why can't he just forgive? Just move it aside. <laughs> Forget about it. Come on. Let's have this relationship. Move that aside. And so in that view, the law or the commandments that are broken are instrumental. Here, we're saying that this law that cannot be brushed aside is not so much the law of Moses or some commandment. It's the very nature of God. That is the law, the law of the holiness of God. God is holy. He cannot deny God's self. That holiness must be satisfied. And I think it's easy for us to say, well, surely there must have been another way. But again, if we are receiving the charisma, the gospel that's been handed down to us, if we accept it and say, well, this is true, then what does that tell us about our situation? It reveals so many things, right? It reveals the depravity and the depth of sin and our rebellion, it reveals just how broken we are, how unjust. It reveals the love of God. It reveals the love of God to the uttermost that Jesus would be willing to undergo all this suffering to say yes to the judgment of God, yes to the holiness of God but also to say yes to sinners in dying for us and with us in solidarity. So there's a lot going on here. I know you have a, a nice quote for us from another book from Peter Forsyth. I think that would be a good way for us to close this okay, episode. Good. This is from the work of Christ, another book of his. He writes, um, we may say that Christ did at the depth of that great act of self-identification with us when he became man, he did enter the sphere of sin's penalty and the horror of sin's curse in order that 
from the very midst and depth of it, his confession and praise of God's holiness might rise like a spring of fresh water at the bottom of a bitter sea and sweeten all. He justified God in his judgment and wrath. He justified God in this thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's the, the question, the word that comes to mind, which I know is one of your favorite words in theology is theodicy. The idea is, is God justified? Uh, mm -hmm. Now, sometimes theodicy is like a theoretical thing where it's, if you have a theodicy, that means that you have a theory or an explanation of why God is justified in running the world the way that God seems to be running it, given all the, the negative things about it that we would prefer not to see. We want to know if anybody's at the controls up there <laughs> and if it makes any sense or if, if God is evil in allowing all these things to happen. Um, so that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about a theory, theoretical theodicy. But I think that Jesus Christ knew in his very being, um, through his fellowship with God and his love for the world, that God is trustworthy despite the fact that the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And that's a remarkable thing. Um, and the idea is that out of God's love for the world and love for humanity and zeal for his own holy name, God sends Jesus uh, and Jesus finds his way down to the bottom of our world. And that is as a righteous sufferer. And as a righteous sufferer, he still says, God is worth it. God is worthy of my trust. And my life is not a big mistake. A life spent following God and, and seeking God's will, even without understanding it. And we don't even know if Jesus understood fully what he was doing, but he appreciated and held the full weight of it. And that's what I think is important. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening for these two episodes on this very weighty subject. I trust that you have learned a few things. If nothing else, you'll be encouraged to always go back to the scriptures and to do your own studies and come to your own conclusions. But hopefully uh, this essay by Forsyth was helpful. And we thank you for just being here with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.